Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today has been both an Amazon seller and a provider for Amazon sellers. Today, he's the CEO and founder of AMZ Atlas, which is a full-service Amazon agency. When he's not working, his passion is to spend time with his four young kids. So I have no idea how he finds time to deal with Amazon four young kids. Uh, that's it's not a handful it's uh, everything full so so with that everybody meet my guest Corey Thomas welcome to the show Corey Nick thanks so much for having me it's it's funny how four kids and, and Amazon they all are a little chaotic uh, it's great to be here today yeah yeah four kids how old are the kids by the way uh it's seven five three and one so it, it is it is uh, all the chaos you can imagine seven five three and one so next year you have another one, do you? We're four is the limit. No, no more room in the car. Well, you know you can't break the algorithm. You know the algorithm says every two years. <laughs> you know we'll just we'll pull them behind in the trailer. Um, but yeah, no, no more seat belts left. So I guess we're at, we're done at this point. Well, I don't know what the but clearly you do have an algorithm. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I trust algorithms more than just human wishes. There we go. There we go. So when you and I discussed Amazon, you brought up an interesting subject about selling through physical stores because a lot of brands that become successful or sometimes mm -hmm. those who are building it, they want to sell in big box stores. Yeah, so absolutely. What is the most important thing for a seller to think about and do something about it before they start? Yeah. If they want to sell through a physical store as well as online, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question, and I think it's easy for us in the Amazon space to forget about. Is we live so much in the everything's about Amazon and optimizing for Amazon, but depending on the strategy that a brand has, if the price gets too low online, it's really difficult to make the leap to traditional retail. And yet retail in many industries still represents 70 or 80% of the total sales um, across overall retail. So Amazon's grown a lot. E-commerce has exploded in 20 years, but relative to traditional retail, it's still under 20%, even after something like the pandemic. So the most important thing that a brand needs to to have is consistency online and offline if they expect to um, be successful in both places. So how do you maintain that consistency if you are selling online? Yeah, so a, a huge part of that becomes what we talk about as control and that's control over the presence as we describe it. That's the product listings, the online retailers or marketplaces that are selling. So. Make sure the product pages look the way that they that you want. Make sure they're quote unquote, you know, merchandise with good product listings. That's important. That's on the brand's website. That's on Amazon. That's on Walmart. That's all anywhere that someone could find your product online. The other part of that control is over the price. 
And that's accomplished. And you know, again, it's, it is a process to achieve that, but brands are allowed to have authorized reseller programs with pricing policies that oftentimes take the form of a MAP or MSRP pricing policy. And when those are executed correctly, you can have the product listings online look the way that they need to. So the people, rep- people recognize the brand and then they're priced in a way that is cohesive with a retailer that might need the item to sell for $100 because they have you know, 500 retail locations that they have to staff and their unit economics are different than just an online retailer or an online marketplace. Does that make so, sense? I, yeah, absolutely. I have a very interesting question for you. Mm-hmm. So if you are selling to physical, if your product is selling in physical stores, you have a buyer you're dealing with, right? Yeah. So the buyer gives you a PO, you supply the PO, they pay you in 90 days if you're lucky. And <laughs> if you are really lucky, you never get a return back from them. Yep. Yep. Because yep. when the product stops selling, they, they like to send everything back so that they don't have to pay. So, right. um, so you are in the hands of the buyer in terms of your income. Mm-hmm. So that the buyer keeps giving you a PO, and then you end up uh, getting paid based on your terms. Market takes a nosedive. Yep. Stores are stuck with the inventory. They cannot return it back to you. Yep. What do they do? It's a rhetorical question, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah, float you know, it, right? They float it. They do. So yeah. now... You have people because those buyers, they 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 in fact some companies buyers buy excess for the purposes of floating back because that's how they are maximizing their uh, their whole operation. So um, then the next thing is you've got a bunch of resellers on Amazon, and because the store floated it. At a real, they take a loss. They'd rather take the cash, and now stuff is selling dirt cheap, and and there you are on Amazon, your own product, and there's no way that you're gonna you're gonna compete with that kind of a situation. So, tell me about your take on all this and and how you deal with it. Yeah, and I think Nick, the what I might say is even the thing we see that's a little more common, I would say, because, you know, if a retailer goes out of business, we've all been doing this long enough to see when, you know, if Bed Bath & Beyond goes under, there's going to be some chaos online. Product is going to find its way. And I think in a lot of ways, brands are, that's that's a pretty difficult situation to do much about. It'll create chaos, but there is a limit to the inventory. What we find brands struggle with more on an indefinite basis and long-term is when they work with distributors to sell into retail. And most industries in retail are dependent on some form of distribution. And distributors are notorious for adding new accounts. And distributors are very protective of who their retail customers are because they're concerned about the brand going direct to these retailers and cutting the distributor out. So there's some tension. There's tension between the distributor and their customer list and the brand who wants to know who those customers are to make sure they're not leaking it back online. We find a very difficult 
thing for a brand to do is those sales in retail are great, but if the distributors are just signing up any retail customer they can find without doing a good job of vetting those customers, those become big leaking holes in a brand's bucket. You know, the, where does that come back as? Of course, the DBA reseller on Amazon under a different name um, that sells for whatever price that they want. So we find, Nick, to address your question is a retailer going out of business is a challenge. And in some regard, that is a temporary transitory issue. That being said, I think brands should be thoughtful of if a, if a retailer is buying so much inventory that you can, as your as the brand logically see how they can move that much inventory, you can also throttle what you accept and allow them to purchase. Don't, you know, don't assume they can be 10 times bigger than they were last year just because they wrote you a bigger PO. That being said, the thing that's more of an issue is ongoing leaky distribution creates sometimes kind of these hidden but permanent challenges that brands have to really be thoughtful about their distributor partners because it kind of hurts everybody when rogue resellers online are driving the price of the brand's products down. Yeah, I mean, this is, so what I'm hearing from you is these situations where the retailers are floating excess inventory, that's a fact of life. There is not much you can do about it. And the good news is it's limited to the amount of inventory that they float. Uh, however, there are, I mean, I know for a fact that especially on like premium brands, some of those like buyers of Costco and Sam's Club, they buy for the purposes of reselling. Mm -hmm. So that is a constant bleed situation because you don't know. It's, it's, they have a legitimate invoice. They bought it directly from Costco and now they are on Amazon. They're competing with you. So, uh, but that's a more permanent situation. How do you deal with something like that? Well, no, I think that there, there's a good example. I'll just call it out. I mean, if you look on the top resellers through, you know, Marketplace Pulse is a great source for this. I mean, Petco is a top 100 reseller on Amazon. That's a problem. Like if I'm a brand, you don't need Petco to sell for you on Amazon. Um, and as a brand, you can have authorization agreements in place with a brand and a retailer like Petco that prevents them from doing that. Now, again, that puts is the, you know, the brand and the retailer. Now, how important to you as a brand is Petco if you're in the pet industry? Are you going to throw your hands up and allow them to resell your products on Amazon? Or are you going to take a stance and, and consider that as something that they're not authorized to do? And you as a brand, if they're breaking your authorization programs of where they're allowed to sell, you have the power to cut off their supply for reason. But that's the rock and hard place. We talk a lot about internally with the brands that we work with. It's, it's easy to say, but it's hard to execute on is the brand's will. Does the brand value control enough to make hard decisions? Because if they don't, at a certain point, at the end of a quarter, when they want to hit a sales number, it is easy to run a buy one, get one free on your website. And a lot of people will show up and it'll be a great sales day. And you know what's going to happen is a bunch of that product's just going to get back online and it's going to hurt you 60 days in the future because you'll have a bunch of resellers you don't recognize. So it's, yeah. it is not easy, but I think what we want to do is put the power back in the control of the brands. 
know your customer like you're a financial institution and accept the fact that, hey, look, last year, Petco moved a million units of this product and now they want to buy 2 million. Did Petco's footprint really grow twice? Or is it maybe 10 or 20% bigger as you know more demand goes to retailer? Why are we giving them an extra 50% of product for them to you know channel online? That just gets in the way of what we're trying to accomplish as a brand. Yeah. I think brands have to be a little more confident in their decisions. Yeah, it's, this is always a tough thing. I mean, you, you, on one side, you have the customer being this retailer placing an order with you, and then they are also selling online. Mm-hmm. And, and you go to them and say, look, I saw you started to sell online, but this is against the agreement. So I want you to stop and say, well, if you don't want us to sell online, then we won't give you any more orders. So now, <laughs> yep. that's, the, that's the dilemma, right? So yep. Well, I mean, I think that goes all the way back, Nick, to one of your original questions is kind of what, how do you balance retail and online? I mean, I think the retailers are nervous about online. They just took a beating over the pandemic and now they're having their moment as people are going back into stores. Those are, these are positive things, but I think brands need a diverse customer base. So no one customer gets too powerful because all, all these same dynamics we're talking about play out with a brand's relationship with Walmart or a brand's relationship with Amazon through Vendor Central. Anytime that you've got one customer that's 30, 40, 50% of your sales, that's a precarious place to be as a brand because you know, retailer going out of business, distribution, all that, those are challenges too. So is the brand, the retailer saying, you know, next year we're going to buy for 20% less. Never mind that your cost of goods might have gone up. We just you know, we, or we're going to private label you and we're not buying any of your product anymore. So that, I think that that's, it's the same. If you're a brand leader, you got to be thinking about a diversified customer base and having control of the online marketplaces is a huge way to do that because then you can have healthier retailers that they can be confident that people don't walk through and, hey, look, on my phone, I can see it for $20 less. Thanks for that nice story. I'm going to leave and buy it from my couch. Now they buy it because they're in the store. Like, uh, you know, Having a dozen really strong customers is certainly a lot better than three huge customers, I think, from a brand's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is true. So I I always say this to whenever I work with anybody who wants to sell in a to a retailer, I say, look, or better yet, some people are solely relying on getting a PO from mm-hmm. one of the retailers. They don't do any marketing. They don't do anything to create a following or anything like that. And they come up with a great idea. They create a prototype and then they finally produce the item. And then the next thing is let's get a PO. Let's start showing it to some buyers, set up appointments. They spend all the time. And the next thing is they get a PO. Mm-hmm. Well, let's assume the best case scenario. Somebody gives you a PO and they put it on the shelf. It doesn't sell. What do you think they're gonna do, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and then I, I see a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs who are not familiar with how these things work. They start complaining. Oh, the store is doing nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not up to the store. Store is a channel. What you do is you create a product, and then you create a create awareness for it, and you say, "Would you like to buy it? Here is where you can buy." It. Yep. 
your job to drive business to the store. Store is just making it available to them. So yep. don't complain. So that's point one. Point two is I want to hear all your take on these two things that I, I, I believe strongly. Stores are there to maximize their revenue per square footage. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to do with product. <laughs> so if the product is not selling or it's not making enough, the calculation is very simple. How much did this real estate generate per square foot? And if it's low, whatever is causing that to be low, they're going to dump it overnight. They're completely agnostic. They don't care about your success. So planning your success solely based on a retailer is not a good thing for the brand. So therefore, I say don't don't look at that as your primary, uh, as even secondary, maybe down the road. So... Uh, trusting retailers for your success and also, you know, uh, going after them first rather than you creating. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? I think you're you're totally right, Nick. I mean, at the end of the day, we've had huge brands and big conglomerate. I mean, we've had massive companies come to us that ever, you know, we would as entrepreneurs wish we had built ourselves. And to hear that they're going to get thrown out of retail because the price online is so low that the retailer can't make any money, to your exact point. If I can't make any money as a retailer, I don't care how important you are, I'm throwing you out. <laughs> it's like, it's not an accident that retailers clamor over themselves to have Apple product or be an authorized retailer or want to carry Bose or these. But if you look online and you look to buy a Bose pair of headphones, it's not like you can find it anywhere for 30% off. Maybe it's a couple bucks here, a couple bucks there, but that is as temporary. And it's it's a fire sale of a few dollars. That gives retailers confidence to put it on the shelf. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's either going to get better with momentum because you have control across all the channels. So retailers are going to want your brand. So the online store is going to, going to look for it. So you have the margin to invest in your own direct consumer site and use extra marketing dollars for your social media. Like that all works together. But if on the other hand, you've got no control online, so retailers are throwing you out and now you're having to make cost concessions so you don't have any marketing dollars, I mean, that's the death spiral. So it's it's one or the other. And if you're at a spot as a brand owner where you're like, I'm doing really well on Amazon, but I have no footprint anywhere else, be more than the cheapest. Because I can tell you now that if you're just winning because you're the cheapest on Amazon, there's no no footprint for you anywhere else. You are now dependent on Amazon not raising their FBA fees too much that you're losing money. That's all you have. So instead, how do you build a brand that people actually pursue, even if you're only on Amazon today, because now that means more organic traffic. And that also means you could go to a retailer and you could start to look at diversifying your customer base. So no matter whether you're only on Amazon or you're already as a brand in a lot of different retail locations, Having your brand be as valuable and sought after after as just being the wooden spoon of choice with the lowest price. I mean, the wooden spoon of choice, you're not going to beat somebody who has no marketing collateral and is just doing the most inexpensive thing they can. You've got to build a brand and building a brand enables you to be successful across a lot of channels. And if you're in a brand that you've got a lot of, you lack for control, maybe everybody knows you and you're a household brand, but if the price on Amazon, walmart.com or the retail store that somebody's in 
are 10 or 20% different, you have a massive problem that will erode your brand equity so fast. Like you have got to get the control back if you're in that position so that you don't undermine what you're trying to accomplish on all those channels. Con consistency yeah. is super important. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the keywords that I'm hearing from you is control, of course, consistency. Uh, between the two, you know what other word I'm hearing? It's discipline, right? So <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So it's very hard for a, a new seller. For it's very hard for an entrepreneur not to uh, to have the discipline to say no. I'm not going to sell to this account. Mm -hmm. they, you just want to maximize sales, and also at the same time, it's so hard to say. Well, just offer. 20% off for three days. So we're not saying don't do it. All we are saying is think it through. Yep. What will be the consequences? And then who else did you sell to who may be upset? I mean, we all we all do this, right? So we go buy something, and then a few days later, we see it selling at a discount. How do we feel? Yeah. Yep. Well, I think, Nick, that's a really... That's a big part of, I mean, you've been in this for a long time. I've been doing it. Nobody wants to hear from the service provider or the consultant this like, we showed up to be helpful and all we did was point out the things you're doing wrong. I mean, that's, it's meet the brand where they're at. But I do think to your point, it's illuminating the upsides and the downsides to the decisions. So you want to run a Cyber Monday discount. That makes a lot of sense. But there's a huge difference between running a discount at 15% and running a discount at 40% on Amazon. If you're running at 15%, no one can actually make money buying that because they're going to pay the referral fee based on their price point. So you're, you're not opening the door to a thousand resellers that bought your product on Amazon and arbitraged it right back onto Amazon. 40%, sure, you'll get extra volume, but half that volume or more is likely bad volume because now you've just given it away at a wholesale price practically online that all that's going to work against you later in the season. So, I mean, there's reasons for everybody to run their business the way that they need to. And you got to move inventory when you've got to, you got to pay bills as you need to. I totally get that. But there's a, it is a subtle difference to run a discount of 15 versus 30% but yet the control that a brand retains, 15% is something that a customer will value. 30% is something that a unauthorized reseller will value. And who are you really doing the discount for? So it's, it's the nuance between, it's not don't ever run a discount. It's run a discount thoughtfully so you don't create yourself a bunch of wholesale customers that you didn't think about, or maybe do a quantity limit of one per customer. There's a lot of ways that we as service providers and others can guide the decision. You want to run a Black Friday through Cyber Monday discount. Totally get it. That's valuable in social media that builds brand equity. But don't do the discount steeper than 18 to 20% where you're going to get a lot of volume of resellers that are competing with you later in December. That's just, yeah. how, that's how it is. Yeah. Now, another philosophy that I, I believe, and this is not just for discounting, uh, in general, uh, discount, discount is part of negotiation, really. You negotiate mm -hmm. with the customers. Look, buy, why don't you buy my product and I'll give you this much off. 
So yeah. you're really negotiate, negotiating. So, uh, and I love the subject of negotiation. And I always say this. So uh, we were actually talking internally the other day, one of the team members, and, uh, and I, I gave my take on negotiation. I said, negotiation is, is nothing to do with buying and selling. Mm. Negotiation is a fact of life. It's balancing the forces. That's all it is. Mm. For example, when you are turning a corner in your car, it's called negotiating a corner, right? When you are talking to your mother-in-law, that that you know you don't like what she says. Well, you don't just say no, get out of my face. No, you say you you sometimes you say yes, but when you say no, you say no in a totally different. So you're negotiating with your mother-in-law. So so we are always negotiating. So what is negotiation? Negotiation is, and this just goes back to the discount. Somebody wants something, mm -hmm. and you want something else but both of you want the same thing one wants to buy the other wants to sell yep so the car wants to go right but the the forces push you to the left so what do you do you go slowly right? you go mm -hmm. slowly so it's the same thing so if somebody wants to buy the most important question is not how much they were they're going to discount but the most important question is do they really want this? Does the, the customer ask, do I really want this? The seller says, do I really want to sell this? Mm -hmm. So in your case, do I really want to sell this to a reseller? The answer is no. So then what do you do? Then is, there's no more negotiation because you just put the price at what it is and that's it. Yep. So uh, it, it's finding that, that balance between what I want and what the other side wants. So yep. here is my philosophy. If I'm going to give in to the other side, it's never free. Mm -hmm. They have to do something yep. in return. So that's the essence of it. So if you want to offer a discount, that means they are receiving something. What are they going to do in return? That means buy in the next 30 minutes. Buy only one piece. Buy you or you have to buy so many pieces. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I see so many sellers offering stuff with no conditions. It's just off, so much off, so much off. Yep. So, what is what is your take on the kind of rules that we can implement around offering a discount? Yeah, I think the offering a discount rules quantity is a good one. Time is another big one. You know, I think that we would be kidding ourselves if someone in a seasonal business like apparel is not going to steeply discount product as the season's ending. Like, you could take the high road and we don't discount. Well, good for you. You're going to be sitting on a whole bunch of product for, you know, that's going to see a birthday as we talk about. So it's there, there's always something to be managed in the middle. I think the thing I revert back to is the old sales slogan. People don't mind bad news. They just hate surprises. I think that's what we're kind of obligated to do as a service provider or as an expert in the industry or a conversation like today is, look, running a discount, run a discount, do it during Cyber Week. That's good for your brand, but don't do it at 40% unless you want a bunch of unexpected resellers. To your point, the negotiation there is we need to do it at a price that gets it to the end customer the way that we want. 
which is drive volume, and we get it in the hands of the people we intended to, which were our customers and consumers, not shadow retailers. Okay, that is the compromise that we made. It's not a 40% discount that our end consumer would even love even more. It's only 20% because it protects our business. The other thing that I think is you know, part of the negotiation is what time horizon are you negotiating over? Are you managing your business to flip it in a year? Like, is that what you are? That I think is also important. There are, there are plenty of brands that their strategy is we're manufacturers. This is all we do and how it gets to the market. We don't care about that afterwards. You, you do what you want. If you operate your brand or your retailer at a lower margin than someone else, that's fine. But we sell to everybody at the same price. We're a manufacturer. I think that's a totally fine business model. And you're transparent with your end customers about making that happen. But don't then try to be somebody who has a consistent price online as you have in the retail store. And don't mind the phone calls that come from the retailer complaining about Amazon. The negotiation that you have is we don't, everybody buys at the same price. And nobody had, there's no control over it. So you run your business to the price and the margin you need to, and Amazon or the marketplace will run it for theirs. I think that's, those are all fine, but don't try to be more than one thing or you're really nothing. And so I think the time horizon and the goals that a brand has is equally very important for them to negotiate with themselves. Are you trying to flip your business and sell it um, to a PE firm? Well, that probably means you need to show revenue growth and maybe less profit growth. Okay. Or are you trying to, you're a family run business and you want to be in business in 10 years? Well, you probably need to make very different decisions that have a longer term horizon than somebody who's just trying to make the next quarter. So those are things that I think you have to negotiate with yourself and not expect to have, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it, so to speak. Yeah. So in, in 21st century, everybody is pretty much now free to build a brand. Mm-hmm. focusing on Amazon. To you, what is the right strategy in terms of selling to physical stores? Mm. I think one of the most exciting things that's available to you know an entrepreneur starting a brand now is how you can build and use social media to build a brand. Like you have more, more power as an individual or a small team to build a brand than you ever have. And building that brand and growing your consumer base through your own direct consumer website, but then also on Amazon through a direct selling seller central strategy, that's a great place to start. And that's where I would start if I were building a brand today is my own website and Amazon at the same price that I sell on my website. The thing that I would make sure that I do, however, is I would make sure that I leave enough margin in those price points that I give myself the option of being successful in retail. Because if you're selling a $50 item and you as the brand are only making five to $10, you know, that's 10 to 20% margin, no retailer in their right mind is going to carry your product. It's just like, that's not going to happen. Then nobody's going to do, they're going to want 30, 40, or even 50% margin when they purchase your product. So if you can't afford to do that, you've already made your retail strategy not worth considering. Instead, if you want to have retailers in your diversified portfolio of wholesale customers, you've got to produce a product that has enough value that you can produce it for that same $50 item, but it only costs you 20 to 25, maybe $30. You need to be making 40 to 60% margin as the brand yourself if you have any hope of breaking into retail. 
So I think that's important to think about the economics that a retailer has. They're not FBA fees, referral fees, and seller central optimization. If you can only win by being the cheapest on Amazon, you're going to have a very tough road going anywhere except for Amazon. And that's fine. Like if that's all that you want to be is on Amazon, great. But if your goal is to not be, you know, reliant on the A9 algorithm and how it changed, you're going to have to sell fewer units at higher margins so that you can have conversations with retailers that says, hey, we may not be the best selling wooden spoon, but we're a wooden spoon that has good margin and it's worth you putting it on your shelf because you don't have a price competition. It's consistently sold for $19.99 every day of the week. You can look back, you use the tools to show your historical sales price and you're talking to a buyer at one of these retail locations and you say that price hasn't moved in two years. Sure, there's all these brands that come and go that sell it for $9.99 and then they're gone in six months, but you can count on if you as a buyer bring our product into your store, you're not going to be undercut online and you have customers who will be happy with the end product. I think that's super important. And I think that buyers, buyers' jobs at retailers is to purchase product that they can turn. They are accountable for the turns that they purchase. So they're certainly not going to go out on a limb for you just because you wanted them to, if you're going to lower your price 60 days later, um, or there's a history of all this you know, price negotiation, you got to show them consistency if you ever want to break into retail and the buyer's incentivized to care about that. So just give them something that shows consistency and control. And now you're it's very different than most brands that they have to fight over pricing and control all the time. So I don't know. I think that that's vital for a brand and an entrepreneur is to create a product that actually makes money. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I, they see, of course, who would disagree? You know, you want to mm -hmm. create product that makes money. Of course. The problem is not that people do things by, you know, creating products that don't make money. They create products but by the way they run the business, they think they're making money, but actually mm -hmm. they don't. So yeah. that's the main problem. And the, the, the primary reason for that is they don't think it through uh, mainly because generally behavior, they like mm -hmm. to do things, people like to do things quickly. They don't have the discipline to think it through. Um, another reason is even if they try to think it through, they don't really understand the moving parts of what may impact. So, so as a result, somewhere a decision is made and then mm -hmm. suddenly the decision is lurking around, God knows how long, constantly yeah. hurting you. So that's the challenge. So let's do a little exercise now that uh, so that we can articulate this uh, a little bit more. So I heard you say, uh, just a minute ago, you need to have 40 to 60% margin if you have a retail retailer strategy in mind. Yep. Yep. Okay. So let's, let's open that up a little bit. Let's say that you're selling an item for the sake of argument, $100. Yep. So 40 to 60% margin means what exactly? Is it you are buying it for $40 and then selling it for $100. So therefore, you are achieving 40% margin. Is that so? That's 60% margin. Uh, or, or buying it for $60 and then selling it for $100. So therefore, you have 40% margin. So yep. 
Is that what you mean? Yeah, so I can unpack that. Using $100 is a good number. So for $100, if there's any aspiration that a company would ever want to take their products to retail, that brand wants to grow into retail someday, don't expect a retailer to pay more than $60 on that, period. Like the, the idea that they will accept an item that they purchase for 60 to sell for 100 and make 40%, you're, you're, you're in the ballgame. Now, you have to make money as the brand because the wholesale price is no good if you don't make any money. So following that same logic is, you know, a lot of manufacturers work off of 10 to 12 or 15% kind of net margin. So you're likely going to need to be able to manufacture your item and have it with landed cost of somewhere between 40 and $45 so that then you can afford to sell that item to a wholesale account or a retailer at 60 and still make 15 to $20. So that, I mean, there's an old concept in retail, like keystone margin was your product is supposed to sell for a hundred. The brand wants to buy it for 50 and you can make it for 25 to 30. Like that was the economic, I don't think we live in a world that can support that. It's become too efficient. It's more likely 160, $40 in, anymore. Like that's probably where it lies. But if you're trying to sell an item for hundred dollars, make sure that you can justify the value of that product to the end consumer. And you can pack enough value in that while getting it to you at a landed cost of $40. You're onto something if you've got that. Yeah. Okay. So let's now. This is a this is a very good uh, exercise because it it uh, I'm gonna take it a step further mm-hmm. and expand so that we can see the full picture. So let's say that you've got a product that the retail price is hundred dollars, and then you're manufacturing that, or you are the brand owner and you have it manufactured and landed, and uh, you're buying it for forty dollars. That's that's let's be optimistic that yep. you are bringing it here at 40 bucks yep now you sell it to the store 60 dollars you make 20 bucks right yep so 20 dollars 20 dollar profit over a 60 dollar sale yep right so 20 divided by 60 that's your profit margin right yeah, that'd be your gross margin because now you got to think about the marketing, your staff, and all the businesses run in that margin. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the gro- That's a thirty-three percent gross margin for the business. Okay. So you made thirty-three percent gross margin by selling to a store. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's a store, they're gonna purchase. So let's say they give you, I don't know, let's say thousand pieces PO. So thousand times forty dollars a piece, forty thousand dollars worth of inventory. Yep. Now you have already invested that money when you place the PO, right? Yep. And then you know you're gonna pay much before you get paid. So forty thousand dollars is your cash that you've already invested to make that twenty dollars a piece. Mm-hmm. $20,000. So yep. 40000 is invested to make 20000 You would think that's a good return, except that you have to wait three months. Now, you've already paid 
the advance against the PO, blah, blah. So you're already out of pocket, but you haven't seen a dime yet. So you have to wait another three months. So now extend that to Amazon. So you are also selling on Amazon. Now take that $40 cost and you're going to sell it on Amazon. Yep. You're going to pay $15 for commission to Amazon yep. right off the bat. You're going to pay, depending on the size and FBA fee, let's assume another 15%. Yep. So another 15. So we are now up to 30 bucks as the cost of the item. Yep. You're going to spend probably 20 bucks on advertising it to build your you know, 20% uh, takeoffs is a pretty good number. Yep. So, so it's another 20. So now 15 plus 50, 15 plus 20. So we have 50, $50. Yep. So at $50 cost, everything else, you know, your, your overheads, Amazon storage, not even counted yet. So now you have 50, let's say $60 cost. Take that away from, so you made $40. Mm -hmm. So your margin is 40%. But you don't have to invest the same amount of inventory and you get paid every other week. Right? And you make more money. When I, when, what I think is, I, from what I'm hearing actually, Nick, is you actually make less money or about the same. So that, then we'll kind of do the left and the right. So in the retail, you have a hundred dollar price point that you sell into retail at $60 for your $40 product, right? So your, your net revenue after everything is 20 bucks. Same logic, Amazon, it's a hundred dollars. And you just talked about 15% referral, 15% re, you know, FBA fees and inbound freight. Now you're down to 70. So before marketing, the wholesale retail channel gives you 60 per unit. Amazon gives you 70 per unit. Now, if you, you're going to run your own marketing and you're going to pay to your point at $20, you're actually now down to $50 per unit into Amazon of which you paid $40 for each unit. So you're only actually making in that scenario $10 a unit because you have the same cost of goods of $40. So I, now again, that's where the marketing expense at 20% is. That's where you're if you didn't have to market, you're more profitable on Amazon than you are in retail. You're making $70 a unit on your organic sales compared to $60 of wholesale sales to retail. That is better. But all those invested dollars, those, are, those pull that down into almost parity with retail. But I think my point there is selling on Amazon, I think this is the exact thing you said you know, five minutes ago. I think the revenue is... It's like a sugar high. The revenue on Amazon looks really good, but when you follow that all the way down, you may be making less per unit selling on Amazon for yourself than you are in a wholesale channel if you go all the way down that math. But I think that's the third leg that's so important there. That referral fee on Amazon at 15% is expensive. Brands also need to be selling through their own website because if you don't have to pay the 15% and you're not paying such aggressive FBA fees and you can do standard UPS ground for you know half the price of the FBA fee. Now you're instead of near parity around kind of this 50 to $60 price point, you're making 10 to 15, maybe $20 a unit. 
Now it's you're up at 80. Like you've doubled your margin against any other channel just by selling through your site. Your website is where brands, brands are going to get built and be successful from a profitability perspective through their own website. But the volume is the tonnage is going to be done through retail and Amazon and, you know, the Walmart marketplace. So well, does that make sense? Well, I have plenty of things to say. So yeah. I enjoyed the conversation very much. So first of all, Bori, you missed something. What I miss? I'm going to make a correction. So in your calculation, you said, so you're making $60 on, on a wholesale channel and $70 on Amazon channel. Well, actually, you're making 20 on wholesale channel. Yep. Yeah, because so you got the cost of goods. Yeah. So you have, so you're making 20. So on the uh, whole, on the retail channel, you have $70 before the cost of goods. So take the cost of, so you have 30. So 20 versus 30. Yes. However, on the uh, wholesale channel, the biggest uh, obstacle is, I mean, you know, we watch Shark Tank all the time. People mm -hmm. show up and they, they are asked, okay, have you, so do you have a PO for it? Did you, no, we, they, they talk about how they met the buyer and the buyer's so interested. So do you have a PO for it? No. Why not? Because we didn't want to take it. Why? Because we couldn't produce it. We don't have the money. So, yep. so you have this cash crunch that comes yep. in. Only this is just to produce it. You don't have the cash. Then yep. to wait another three months to get paid. So yep. the cost of that. So that's number one. So that's the part that has to be fat because there is a cost for this. Yep. So uh, number one. Number two, if you, so the argument about selling through Amazon versus selling on the website, yes, you don't want to be relying on Amazon only, for mm -hmm. sure. I always advocate start on Amazon so that you learn doing business online because it needs different kind of disciplines, different kind of infrastructure, put yep. that in place the, without having to worry about pick, pack, ship and customer service and all that stuff. So, uh, so therefore it's a good place to start, but it's not the only place to sell uh, yep. at the website, but that calculation that says, well, you're paying 15%. So to save the 15%, sell it also on your website now, that's also a little bit of a, a short calculation of the costs that come with selling on your website. So, okay, mm -hmm. I always say this. This is actually on my website, and it's, on, it's titled Online Retail Challenge. Mm -hmm. so, it's, so it goes like this. If you want to sell on your website, it's a front-loaded operation. That means you have to build a website. You have to optimize it. You have to pay a lot of money to make sure that it has all the looks, bells, and whistles that consumers want, which, by the way, keep changing all the time. New things come out. So yep. uh, you have to have all that. Let's assume that you have all the money to do that. Then yep. it has to have a back-end tie back to the management inventory, blah, blah, blah. So let's assume you have that too. And then these things take time. So you're going to have to spend a long time dealing with, you know how it is, developing, develop, dealing oh, with yeah. developers. So let's assume that you have all the money and then you get it all done in a week. 
Now comes the next thing. Okay, you need traffic. Yep. Okay. Well, that doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen cheap. Yep. You have to yep. keep pushing traffic. So let's assume you have all the money, and then let's assume you get it done in a week, and you've got now traffic coming. The next question is: Is it qualified traffic? Mm -hmm. Is it what is your conversion rate? So conversion rate is very hard to achieve for a new website. Is it website behavior? Is it product? Is it price? Is it is it our message? Pro, you know, all colors, whatever. So mm -hmm. let's assume you have all the money to get the best conversion rate. So now all these things, obviously, we cannot make these assumptions because they're not real, but let's assume they are real, knowing <laughs> that they are not real, which means that you are already committing to the fact that you're going to spend a lot of money, spend a lot of time only to have to deal with more things that will cost time and money. And we know that that's going to be the case. But yep. for the sake of argument, let's say that we are successful in achieving those things within our means in a, in a desirable amount of time. What's the best thing that can happen? You get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of orders. Now, do you know anybody who starts a business who is happy to be receiving so many orders every day? day after day yeah i mean it's a nightmare now mm -hmm. you need pickers packers you need there's this theft there is their stuff there's uh people getting sick and and this is your best case scenario now am i advocating against no what i'm saying is don't think that that 15 percent <laughs> will be saved you're gonna spend God knows how many times that 15%. Without yep. making a dime, there will be nothing you'll be spending up front. And then after you spend up front, things are happening. It's gonna, you're gonna spend a lot more because you're gonna have to hire people, mm -hmm. participate in the order, volume, blah, blah. So if somebody said to website owners, I'm gonna send you enough qualified traffic and you don't have to worry about all the fulfillment stuff, and I'm gonna charge you so much per order you would happily take it. Yep. So that's why I say be careful about saving that 15% because you know it will have other costs associated with it. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I completely and I think Nick, that's the that's why going all the way back to the beginning is I mean, this is the the brands that will endure are going to have control and consistency within an omni-channel approach. Because every single one of the channels has a problem. We didn't even talk about in the economic model what it's like to have a distributor. There, there are distributors and retailers and online marketplaces and direct consumer websites. They all have different margin profiles. They all have different requirements. Amazon's barrier to entry is really low relative to these other channels. So you certainly, if, if someone asked me, you have only $20,000 and you've got, to, I want to manufacture a product and I want to sell it somewhere. You're basically only going to have success taking that to Amazon. Now, again, it's going to be super competitive because the barriers are so low to entry that you and everybody else with $20,000 are going to try to do that. So it's going to be an intense competition, but you can only go so far with $20,000. And a website, you could spend all that making your website look halfway decent and you'll have no marketing dollars to drive any traffic or you won't have built a brand. So it's, I think, Amazon allows you to get in the game 
Right. But it is also, and there's 50% plus of the traffic. There's all these eyeballs. These are all good things, but that also makes it relentlessly competitive. I mean, there are, there are, we, there's all the YouTube videos of the overnight success story that I launched an FBA brand on Amazon. And now look at me with my Lamborghini. The fact is there are 10 times as many, I threw my life savings at a project and now I've got a garage full of garden, you know, garden claws or, you know, garlic presses, you know, it's like, you know, FBA, if you were into FBA eight years ago, it was a lot less competitive. The market is creating much more higher barrier to entry because of the intense competition. I mean, I've seen, you know, people track the number of new selling accounts on Amazon. There's like a thousand new selling accounts every day. That is a lot of competition coming from giant manufacturers all around the world trying to get on Amazon and you're trying to solve it with $20,000. Just understand what you're getting yourself into that you're going to have to spend time somewhere to make up that value. Yeah. And Amazon's a great place to start. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's a great place to start, learn the game, develop the disciplines, build the infrastructure. And Mm -hmm. at that point, start looking. And I would say that don't look in the direction of physical stores, pursuing buyers, unless and until your brand is well established, you have cash and your price controls, because these things take time to develop. Your price controls are in place. You've got a pretty good handle on on who else is selling on Amazon. You have a pretty good way to detect any unauthorized sellers. You've got your processes in place. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to share with you and the listeners, uh, 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 one of my previous guests, who uh, her name uh, is Jessica, she ran the, she runs the operations for Grandpa Beck's games. Mm. Perfect story, perfect example. I would you know, urge anybody to listen to it who's thinking about selling to physical stores. What a visionary the, the Grandpa Beck was because, uh, Beck, sorry, uh, he created this board game. And right from the get-go, he said, we're not selling anywhere else but online, but on Amazon. Yep. That's it. They built the whole brand. They added more products. They established the company. And then eight years or so later, they decided to sell to physical stores. Yep. But at this point, their pricing is well established. And I said to her, and by the way, They have watertight agreements with anybody they sell to. They don't sell to distributors. And they have watertight agreement that says rights to sell online are excluded from this agreement. So the items cannot be. And, And I asked her several times, what do you do when somebody sells your item on the same listing? She says, well... That's usually either Amazon selling return item or somebody who purchased it from us with a discount or something along those lines, and uh, we don't allow it. So yep. I was constantly pushing, but what about stores? You know, there's no, 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 no. And then she, she, she basically said, no, we don't allow. There is nobody. Nobody else sells it except yep. us. Yep. So. That is a great strategy, and I would recommend that to everybody. 
that means that you can sell to physical stores, just not right away. And, yep. and, and then, you know, you maintain what you started the episode with, control. You maintain yep. control. And control is all about demand, supply and demand. And you keep the supply low, well, the demand goes up. So it's, it's obvious, right? Well, and I'm sure, again, for Jessica's story right there, that takes, you said the word earlier, that takes discipline. I'm sure that business gets constantly approached by somebody willing to buy a truckload of inventory if at just the right price. And they are smart enough to say no, because they know that that will just find its way back online. So they turn down the immediate sugar high of a big order for the long-term sustainable business that means they are successful on Amazon and they've got a great ecosystem of reliable retailers that understand if they break the policy, they'll never get that product again for the history of that retailer. So now it's a level playing field. They've got control and everybody knows they're not messing around. So I think it's a great story. So I think Amazon can be a great place for a startup to launch their products. Maybe even Kickstarter gets them going with an audience that's more interested in novel ideas. Go from Kickstarter, take it to Amazon, but you said it well, Nick, build the brand and build the brand on Amazon. And with that brand equity, start to inch that price up because if you have any hope of getting to retail ever, you can't be the cheapest online because making 10% on Amazon, there's no room for a retailer. Making pennies, they're not interested. So you're going to have to be, be making 30, 40% margin on Amazon if you have any hope of a buyer ever taking you seriously in a retail store. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, I mean, we, we talked very high level, but obviously this is what wins the, wins the, wins the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to win the war, not the battles, but uh, you have the wrong strategy for distribution, channel strategy, pricing strategy, discount strategy. These are the things that hurt companies for the long term. It's also, it's very hard. The, the damage sometimes is irreversible. Yep. So this was great. So, so Corey, let's now get to know you a little bit. So sure. my, my typical style that listeners know at this point is I go way back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? And let's start there. Yeah, I grew up in um, the middle of nowhere in Southern Oregon of all places on 40 acres between two small towns. Um, you know, the nearest grocery store was 45 minutes away. So it's, it's kind of funny to take uh, my wife and kids, now that we live in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, down to the middle of nowhere. And it's, what do you mean you only shop once a week um, for groceries? Well, I was like, well, it was a long ways away. So I um, started in a small town, um, then came up to the Portland area for school, went to the East Coast, learned some things um, you know, in the e-commerce space and fell into Amazon um, by helping, you know, using the healthcare industry of all places with McKesson and Cardinal and the dropship network and kind of learned the hard way 10 plus years ago what it meant to sell on Seller Central. And from there, it was all about how to help brands be successful if they just focused on Amazon with a, a very specific strategy for what Amazon demands um, overall. So started from a small town, traveled across the country, and here we are. So started in a small town, traveled across the country, and you're back where you were, very close anyway. Yeah, yeah. So according to physics, you know, the amount of work you've done, you know, it's calculated, <laughs> but it's, it's close to zero, right? Yeah, you know, the, the <laughs> amount of R- you could ask an ROI question there, I guess. <laughs> no, I mean, clearly, uh, physics don't calculate intangible. So, mm-hmm. uh, so 
I mean, that's fine, but I'm more interested in your early days in terms yeah. of yeah. So small town, 45 minute. Was it 45 minute walk or 45 minute ride to the nearest grocery? It's a 45 minute drive um, to the nearest grocery. 45 minute drive. So, uh, so I'm assuming until you started driving, you would never be. You would never go to the. Oh yeah, it was. It was. It was quite the pilgrimage. Every you know. Oh yeah, we're gonna go to town. There's a. I went to elementary school at a K through eight that only had. 30 kids in it. So like we had a big class of kindergartners when I started and it was a class of five. Um, so it, it class is of five. class of five kindergartners was big for a school of 30. So that it was, you know, it create, I think it instilled confidence in communicating with people of, you know, different backgrounds, much different experience levels. You know, when you, when you're five and you can talk to a middle schooler, I, you know, I think in my kids now, they don't even, they don't even go to the same school as kids, you know, eight years older than them. And that was just like, that was lunch. You know, like I sat across the table from 12 year olds as a fifth, you know, a so, kindergarten. So I'm going to assume you're not easily intimidated. You know, I guess maybe that's the, that's maybe where the entrepreneurship all started is if you can hang at the schoolyard with the, you know, seventh and eighth graders and the things don't, you know, intimidate you too much after that, I guess, maybe at an early age. So, I mean, that's where I'm going. So I, I want to, because you're an entrepreneur, you're running your own company space like amazon you have to be innovative all the time so mm -hmm. uh, where what was the early sign uh, for that for you to be becoming this yeah so i think the a big one and I, I think about this if someone were to ask like what would you do to help a young entrepreneur be successful i would it may be a little unorthodox but along the way i got a summer job um doing door-to-door -door sales totally unrelated like you know, i was in the, this was when I was back East for a little while of, I worked in the middle, the outside of the Baltimore area, door-to-door -door sales, selling office supplies of all things. Um, so I was in a three-piece suit trying to sell copy paper. Um, and I had to go to 60 to 70 different doors every day without being introduced. There was no plan. You just had to go to these businesses. How, how old were you? Um, I was 20 at the 22 at the time. Um, oh, but so, you went too far. I mean, before I'm talking as a kid. Well, I, I mean, as a kid, I guess it was sports and competition, and those were all good. Like I've always been inspired to win. I just, I guess, business is like a grown-up version of sports to a certain degree. Um, but I, you know, to how that plays out in the business world and the tenacity to press through, try doing six months of door-to-door -door sales and being turned down a lot. Like that, that'll teach a lot of how to deal with. Your, you know, rejection, peeling yourself off the pavement. I mean, all, all the entrepreneur cliche is if you just expect to get your yes on your first your first call or your first intro, your first meeting with a buyer. I mean, you're, you haven't done the entrepreneur thing yet. You haven't you haven't been rejected enough to press through if the first no turn, you know, makes you makes you want to quit. Um, so find find ways to press through, I guess, would be a, a way to suggest it. So that finding ways to press through, is that something that, that you, were, uh, you were doing as a kid? How were you able to do that? I did. I mean, growing up, I did like endurance athletics. So I would like, I swam so that there's something to, I guess that's a grind, I guess, is you train for, you know, once a week race, but the training is miles and miles every day back and forth the length of a pool. I mean, there's just, 
you talked, you said the word earlier, there's a discipline to getting up before school and swimming three or four miles before anybody else has even, you know, gone to their first class. So that, like those between the, the daily double and the pool before and after school swimming, you know, six to eight miles every day, rain or shine, cold or warm, those, those are, I guess you could connect it all. You could connect it all the way back yeah. to, you know, us being. Well, why, a, what got you started in doing that? You know, I, I was good at it. I, I, I try, you know, like my parents pushed me to try the sports um, and I, I really enjoyed that. And I was, I was, I was good at it, but I also enjoyed the challenge. I, I think I like that in some of the individual sporting nature of, if you put in the work, you see the reward. I really like that. Like I'm willing to do the work that most people won't. It's easy to do work hard for a week, but can you work hard for a month? Can you work hard for a year? So that like that willingness to put in the work and then to see the reward that comes from that, that I guess it's be it being a kindergartner at school, being at, you know, in the pool through throughout or in entrepreneurship in life is if you put in the work and then you're rewarded for that effort, I'm kind of addicted to that. Uh, the putting in the work and then seeing the reward over time. So uh, it's interesting to hear the word addicted because that's how it is. So what I want to ask you is when did you first taste that? You know, there was first the one of the early when I started swimming, the first few months, I just started to train um, this early in high school and I didn't do any races. I just trained and I was, I was not good compared to everybody that I was swimming with. But then you don't, for probably four months, I swam every day training with this group. And then I went to my first meet. And when you go to a swim meet, you register your previous time. And I didn't have any times. So I was in the in swimming, the fastest swims in the middle lanes and the slowest are on the edge lanes. And I was in a heat of relatively slow swimmers because I had no time. Um, so they put me in with a heat as the slowest swimmer. And so I jumped in, but I trained for these months. I jumped in and beat everybody by five or six seconds on a you know a minute long race. And so that was a moment where it was like I had no no quote unquote signal of success for those three or four months, but I put in the work. And then the moment that I had an opportunity to compete, I went from the the perceived slowest to the fastest by a significant margin. Now, now it's on and now put me in a pool with a faster group so that I can try to beat them too. And it's one foot in front of the other. And I mean, there was certainly a reward to all that effort. You know, three or four months. Kind of, um, that was... 11 or 12, probably was when I did that. And then it's like, wow, this is, you're onto something here. If you put in the work, you can, you can win the race. And, you know, it certainly got harder, but that was, that was a big part of it. Yeah. And you're still swimming. You know, I swim less than I like, but that comes back to the swimming life. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. That's (laughs) yes. The the amount of time I put my head in a pool is a lot lower. Um, But, you know, I guess life for kids and, and a business is, is plenty. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the part that I love about it. It's, uh, it's something that I, I was told a long time ago. Um, obstacles are not in front of us to stop us, mm. to test us, to figure out a way to go over it, under it, around it. 
but one way or the other, we're going to keep pushing forward. Mm -hmm. So I think that at the age of 11, 12, obviously at the beginning, it's hard and everything, but then once you taste that reward, then you know that obstacles from that point on, there's just a way to test you. It's not there to stop you. And, uh, and you getting into the Amazon space is, you know, it's not easy. I mean, it's, no. it's very hard. It's getting harder. But, you know, no matter how much harder it's getting, whoever I speak to who's good at it, they don't even blink. They're just ready for it. And then, you know, you just figure out, okay, how do we do this? How do we do that? Instead of, yep. oh, my God, what are we <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe maybe we're stubborn, Nick, but it's the the grass is always going to look greener on the other side. You know, yeah. like it's always going to look easy. But then when somebody comes in the industry we're part of is like it ain't as easy as it looks, you know, so it's it's tempting to change. It's tempting to go after the next next get rich quick scheme. But I yeah. think maybe life has shown me that if, if there's value in the pursuit um, and and there's no such thing as an overnight success. No, you know, no matter no. how successful I was in swimming or, you know, AMC Atlas will be, it's from a tremendous amount of work before anybody even notices. It may well, be four months. I will respectfully disagree with you. I think there is overnight success after about eight, nine years of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's funny how that the first eight and a half years of the nine-year run that nobody yeah. pays attention to. It's just the look at what you yeah. did the last six months. Exactly. Well, this was great, Corey. And uh, thank you for the story. I, I really appreciate that determination. So tell us, how can people reach you? Uh, give Share your contact information with us. Yeah, you know, if, if a brand or an entrepreneur finds themselves where they're trying to get control of, of Amazon or they want to grow their business, I mean, that's what we're in. That's what we do at AMZ Atlas is we help brands be successful, especially in, you know, build control for them um, so that all their customers are thriving. And you can get a hold of me by Corey, C-O-R-E-Y at amzatlas.com. Or that's what we're in the business of doing is helping brands reach their peak performance on Amazon and certainly be successful off. Great. Thank you for being here, Corey. Great. Nick, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.